What happens when a chef, a critic, and a culinary writer get together for a totally unscripted conversation? Welcome to Three Ingredients, a show about the world of food. I'm Ruth Reichel, and I've spent my whole life writing about it. I'm Nancy Silverton, America's busiest chef, and the woman who made sourdough bread making a household obsession. And I'm Laurie Ochoa, General Manager of Food at the Los Angeles Times and Happy Tripe Eater. Because if you're going to eat meat, you shouldn't let the good parts go to waste. Can food be too flavorful? That's one of the things we're talking about today. We also go a little bit nuts about pistachios and share a secret for making them crunchier. We rave about one of our favorite food writers and dish on show-off chefs. Today's conversation ends in London as Nancy makes us all very hungry as she talks about her favorite restaurants there. I hope you have at least half as much fun as we did with today's conversation. By the way, all our episodes live over at threeingredients.substack.com, along with a bunch of bonus stuff, including written pieces and discussion threads. You can support the show there or sign up for free, so each episode of Three Ingredients lands right in your email. That's threeingredients.substack.com. So should we discuss an ingredient? I'll, I'll, I'll bring up an ingredient just because okay. um, it was such a surprise to me a few years ago being in Italy and seeing the pinolis and realizing that they were twice the size of the ones I buy in the States. And, and twice as good. And, 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 and no, not twice as good, like 10 times as good. Yeah. I mean, totally Those different. Those are the Sicilian ones, you know. Those are from Sicily. Those and they also cost ten times more. Yes, than the ones that are not from Sicily. And there's something to be said about Sicilian, you know, pine nuts. They are delicious. They are really expensive. But mm-hmm. um, and then now I look, and all the pine nuts that you can buy in the supermarkets here are either from China or uh-huh. Siberia or yep. sometimes Turkey. But yep. Um, they're never from Italy. And I've started buying Italian pine nuts and they are Who do you, crazy. where do you buy them? Do you get them from Gustiamo? I get or? them from Gustiamo. Yeah, oh. we bring them in, uh, sorry, we buy them from, um, not Gustiamo, but, uh, a distributor in Chicago and they're very expensive, but I think it's one of those, uh, ingredients that are worth the price, especially if you're going to eat them whole and garnish. Now, we do buy both and we keep the Sicilian ones for everything that we're eating in its ent- entirety. But when we're making, say, a pounded sauce where we use a little bit of pest, uh, nuts in it, we don't use the Sicilian ones because they are so expensive. Yeah, but, you know, it's one of those ingredients that you have to pay that extra money because they are so special. But, you know, there's also, there's some kind of syndrome from the Chinese ones that some people get. Yeah, there is. There is, and the, and the, and the Sicilian ones don't have that. Right. And I'm not sure what it is either. And, you know, I mean, Sicilian pistachios, those are those beautiful, beautiful green oh, ones. Do you Noto, know what I'm talking right? about? Yes, yes. Yeah. So they're the bright green, 
and they're equally as expensive and equally delicious. And um, I think sometimes as we discuss these recipes, we should give a, sorry, discuss our um, ingredients. Right. How about if we throw a recipe in? A good idea. Yeah, so what I, would you do? With, be, what do you love to do with pine nuts? Well, I'm switching from pine nuts. I like to do a lot of things because I just thought about those Sicilian pistachio, and we all know what we're talking mm. about. Bright wait, green. Wait, can we just tiny. Can, can we just mention to everyone that you are the queen of pistachios? That you I basically exist on pistachios. <laughs> yes, I do love pistachios, but I love these Sicilian ones. Okay, but the problem with this Sicilian. I love the color and that's what the 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 best pistachio or pistachio gelato is made from the Sicilian ones because that's what gives the, the natural color, not the artificial green color, but the beautiful green color is only from the Sicilian pistachios because when they're ground they're actually that beautiful green and they're so delicious but the problem is with them is they're soft, they're not crunchy. And if you say, well, let me toast them, you toast them and they right away turn from that beautiful green to uh, brown. So wow. what do you do? You leave them that beautiful green, but they're soft. They're soft like a, like a pine nut, right? Right. Um, and uh, a few months ago, I was doing an event in Mexico with Nancy Oaks. And she brought the Sicilian pistachios to garnish. And so, of course, because I'm the pistachio queen, I started to eat them and they were crunchy. Okay. And I'm like, okay, they're bright green and they're crunchy. What did you do to them? Right. She dehydrates them. And guess what? I immediately picked up my phone, talked to Amazon or somebody and ordered a dehydrator. And that is the best purchase I've ever made because I dehydrate, I dehydrate those Sicilian pistachios overnight, and they're completely crunchy, completely green, and we're using them everywhere in the restaurant. So wow. that's my recipe. Wow. So, now I so want a dehydrator. You need, you need to get a dehydrator. Yeah. Well, here, here's something. So Franco Pepe in Italy, in, outside, you know, in Caiazzo, outside Naples, um, you know, his pizza is known for, you know, showing off the natural flavors of the tomatoes, the basil. Mm -hmm. But he uses dehydration sometimes to get the essence of a tomato yeah. out of it. Right. And it's so, or, you know, so interesting that you use this technology to get a, you know, the, the pure flavor of something. Yeah. Yeah. Or the, well, just think of sun-dried tomatoes. They're much more constant. That's like the antithesis of a fresh, juicy tomato. You have a sun-dried leathery, but very concentrated. But remember one of his really delicious, uh, pizza or one of his, the pizza Friedi with the, I think it's ricotta. He does the, um, the uh, dehydrated olives and he makes that yes. powder, which is yes. so delicious. But, um, so I, I don't think you're not, I don't think you're doing injustice to the ingredient. You're just constant, you know, concentrating it. But, but these dehydrated pistachios, I cannot tell you, life life changing. So, do you want to do a little shout out to Turkish pistachios too? Because you are, I love them. I love Turkish, and um, Michael, Michael, who I live with. Um, he makes a trip three times a week and buys uh, three pounds each time. So that means. You can do the math how many pistachios I eat 
One's from Aleppo. So I'm more of a fan of the tiny little pistachio. And by the way, I like pistachios more in the shell because I like the work of opening them up and I eat less than if it was just handfuls of already dehydrated Sicilian pistachios. But I love Turkish and I love uh, the ones from Aleppo. They are, I, I, I love them. They're so tiny and so toasty and so delicious. In New York, you can buy those Turkish pistachios at Russ and Daughters. It's the only yeah, place you know I know what? to buy them. Yeah, but you know, it's funny. Uh, uh, oftentimes when I'm uh, in Italy, when I'm in Singapore, and you think that they would be getting pistachio from somewhere closer to them, most of the time they're imported from California. So California is the largest exporter in the world of pistachio. Yeah, but I bet not for long because it's it's a really water intensive crop and yeah, that's true. At, at yeah. At some point it's not going to yeah. make any sense to grow those in California. So since we're talking nuts and and you mentioned Gustiamo, I got to go to Gustiamo and with uh and meet Beatrice out there and you know, um in the it's her warehouse in the Bronx and one of the things she sells are these almonds that are from Noto. Um in Sicily, and they're they're called Romana almonds. And when you mention water, Ruth, the thing that's they're delicious for one thing, but the thing that's fascinating about them is that the shell around them is so hard that they grow them without needing irrigation. And I keep thinking, you know, in California, almonds are so they need so much water. Yeah, like the I pistachio, they they need tons of water. Exactly. So if we could figure out how to get that, is there a way to grow those Sicilian almonds in California? I'm sure. I mean, right now there's not, but but we need to, you know, figure out a way to get these. Well, there's not because they don't exist, but don't you think that the climate where, you know, Central Valley is similar? Yeah. I and mean, this it is gets an pretty hot that there. almost yeah, this is an almond that almost disappeared. Um, but the farmer, you know, um, there was this one farmer that kind of revived this kind of ancient variety, and they're fantastic. well. You know what the variety is? It's a variety that is a cross, or I don't know the scientific structure or makeup of it, but I know the flavor profile. It's a cross between a sweet almond and what we call, or I've always called, a bitter almond. And it's the bitter almond that contains cyanide. the cyanide, cyanide, which is illegal. Now, so Nancy, you, um, when we were talking about how you know you changed dessert and 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 thinking about it, you brought up this article um, that Ruby Tando wrote in the New Yorker about dessert, and it brings up the performative nature of dessert. Vanny, what 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 was what is it about that article that stuck out to you? Well, first of all, her writing, I think, is just, she's so articulate and so original and and, and she just writes very beautifully. Um, and I really kind of uh, latched onto it for that. But then I loved what she had to say because it's everything that I think about, not only desserts, but food. Um, and you just can't sort of say it enough to me. Uh, and that is the beauty of simplicity. And so she sort of starts out that article saying she foolishly 
decided to make a croquembouche at home. Now, anyone that <laughs> would want to make this cream puff dessert that's, that's stuck who together with caramel or <laughs> want to eat it because she was saying that, you know, just sort of that thing that how do I impress my uh, my guests with a croquembouche or a simple strawberry shortcake, right? And so she went the route of the croquembouche and she realized that not only was it not fun and very difficult, but it also wasn't very delicious. And so she was just sort of, you know, talking about simplicity. And just because I just finished um, my last cookbook, which will be out in the fall, uh, a baking book, which I haven't done for a while, but I really paid so much attention to all of the simple desserts that we really want to make as opposed to making this croquembouche. So I was really happy that she wrote this article because it'll jump sales, hopefully, for my for my cookbook. Well, well <laughs> one thing I have to say about croquembouche that I remember is that uh, at a place you wouldn't expect to see it, I remember at one of the Chez Panisse anniversary dinners yeah. or events, Isabel, my daughter, was maybe, I don't know, five or something, and she and this other little girl started eating the croquembouche. And they, they, they were in heaven. They started eating all these, the little bits off of it. And of course they got terrible stomach aches after. <laughs> But, but she always like, had a sophisticated taste, I have to say. So she recognized you, <laughs> early on. But, you know, look, at there is a place for a, a croquembouche, meaning that, like, let's suppose I said, I'm going to have a really elegant retro French party. What should I make? Well, then you got to make something kind of special. That's when you make your croquembouche. But, I mean, for an everyday dessert, that's not what you want to to turn to. And that's not what, you know, that you really you know, pour your heart into in your kitchen. It's something you struggle with. And struggling with making food is not a fun way of cooking. Can I just go back to something about Ruby Tando? Because I that, that article is beautiful. Isn't and it? Good. I'm glad. It, That's why I wanted you both to read it. I just it, thought she summed it up. Reading it, what I thought was, you know, when Lori and I first got to Gourmet, Every writer that came in said, I want to be the next Lori Colwin. And I've been reading Ruby Tando in Vittles, uh, or I don't know if it's Vittles or Vitals, but she has a quite different voice normally. I mean, she's like a proudly queer writer. Um, but Ruby her is voice, or Ruby is, yeah. Oh, because I never I didn't know who she was. Um she she's she's British. Okay. And um and she writes in this wonderful publication, yeah. Vittles, that I've been subscribing to for a while, but um, her voice in this piece is so much like Laurie Colwyn in all the ways that you love. I mean, it's not like she's imitating Laurie Colwyn or anything, but it has that same sort of cozy, yeah, cozy is a great quality, a great description. Yep. And I thought, you know, okay, she is the next Laurie Colwyn, at least in this piece, and you just mm. want to read more of her. One thing I loved about the piece is thinking about why we cook and that kind of the vanity of cooking sometimes when we want yep. to show off. That's or, exactly. Or do we want to just have great food to share with our friends? And 
it's um it's a it's an interesting thing that made me think about why we do cook. But also why we eat at restaurants, right? We all know the restaurants where you eat the food of someone that's a show off, right? It just doesn't taste authentic. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have, it's not soulful. We could go on and on because you know where it came from. And then go back to our friend, Thomas Keller, who does not make show off food. He just knows how to cook, right? But there's this huge difference between a Thomas Keller at the helm and a show off, don't you think? Well, and I think part of the problem is that so many of the cooking schools teach young chefs to be show-offs because the idea is that, you know, that's what restaurant goers want. Right. And And that's what will bring you fame. But it's also ultimately the result of if you, if you weren't using great ingredients, you need to show off a little, right? I mean, if you've got great ingredients, there's no need to show off because the food is going to do all the dancing around for you. Right. Um, but if you're starting with, you know, mediocre ingredients, you're going to have to do something to make people feel like they are, you know, they want to pay for it. And there, there, I mean, it's when you say Thomas Keller is not like that. I mean, his food is, does look amazing. So there is a, a, a performative element to, to some of the food and and that many chefs do and it's kind of makes it fun sometimes so what but is he's the not showing between, off he's not showing yeah, but, off. yeah so what's yeah so what's the difference between something that is very beautiful to look at on the plate it may not be just like the simple peach on the plate classic thing but and 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 something else that you okay well, let's the take the, let's take that croquem bush and i'm just sort of thinking about this so Thomas Keller would make the croquembouche because he loves croquembouche and he knows how to make it. The show-off cook would make it because they just learned how to make it and they're going to show off that they know how to make it. Does but is it going to taste sense? any different, whether it's like yeah. the show-off or A lot the not different. show-off? Yeah, because the show-off really doesn't know how to make it. <laughs> so Thomas you're Keller saying really does. that what makes you not a show-off chef is that you know your stuff? I guess so. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, because I would say, you know, our friend Massimo Bottura is kind of a show-off chef. He's a, but he is a showman. Or he's a showy chef. (laughs) Yeah. He's a showy chef. But I don't think of him as a show-off. Or maybe I think like he deserves to be a show-off or something like that. Maybe. Well, sometimes I think it comes from your own experience. So a lot of Massimo's food comes from things he's thinking about in from childhood or an art piece he loves yeah and there's and there's something it's it's really like his mind going to different places and thinking about things and he gets excited and it comes out of a kind of genuine enthusiasm for what he's doing and then there are people who seem to do things only to because oh this will impress my customers or yeah. remember we used right. to talk about um critic bait dishes you yeah. know uh yeah. you know the dishes yeah. that um you know are are only there not for the regular customers but to get attention to be written about 
Well, and also, wait, Barbara Kafka was yes. the one who deliberately put critic bait onto every menu she designed when she was working uh, with Joe Baum. And one of the and reasons could you for pick that, those dishes? Pardon, could you well, pick no, that? Um, <laughs> probably. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she said one of the reasons she did it was so the chefs could identify who the critics were. She said, like, you know. It, when that dish gets ordered, you you find out who's at that table because only a critic's going to order that dish. That's funny because that's what we like when 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 somebody comes in and we say, "I think that's an industry person," right? It's because from top to bottom of the menu, they order dishes that nobody else orders. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's like yeah. we think that's an industry person because why else would they? Which is sort of, I guess, the same thing as a critic made, but now it's people are just making Instagrammable dishes, right? Oh, yes. Dishes that look good on Instagram. Yeah. And That's it's so big... funny. It's often the worst dishes that look the best. I know. I yeah. know. It's like you take all these pictures and you go, I know. Oh, God, do I have to put this one up? Because it looks so much better than that one that was delicious. But I know sometimes I'll eat something that is so delicious and I take a picture of it because I want to remember. And I look at my picture and it just looks like a bowl of mud. Right. And it's like, who's going to want to say, I mean, how do you say this was delicious and look at my photo, right? You need all that other stuff that goes on with the Instagrammable ones, I guess. But yeah. Of course, um, people could instantly confuse Lori for the person who's yeah, the, critic the critic because ben, she she's is. Gonna, if you put, if you put innards on any yeah. menu, she, the more, yeah. the more the merrier. Right. If you've got I, tongue I will, tripe. I do love my innards. And, and but, tendon on, on, in one dish. Right. Lori is maybe the only person in the world who's going to order that dish, but she's going right. to order it. But so like, so if the server, if the server took Lori's, um, uh, what, a, a order, right? Her food order. I'm sure the, the server would come back and say, I think this may be an industry person. And guess what? They'd be right. She is. <laughs> But Ruth, you also love your tripe. So, you oh no, I, I love tripe. Share I do tripe. And so. but I just remember, you know, going out. You're like the only person I can go out with and know that when the duck webs come by on the dim sum cart, you and I are the only ones who are going to say, "Oh, we need to have that." Right, and um, we do need to have them, and we do need to have that. But you also like Ruth. You'll also open over to the the simplest, you know. Lori always seems like she goes for, uh, like, what's Lori going to order? You could always predict it, I but I can't predict what you're going to order, Ruth. Lori's oh. a little bit more predictable. Like, you look at the, like, like our friend Chrissy was like, okay, we know she's going that because she only wanted the most expensive always, right? Because <laughs> you were that's paying. That's from coming from a big family, <laughs> right. right? I know. I know. But like, I can't always predict what you're going to order. Lori is a little bit more predictable. And Marky would order the chicken. Yeah. I always felt like when I was a critic, I could pretty much tell what everybody at the table was going to order. And then I would just back clean up. I would just order whatever nobody else had ordered. You know, I I have something I'd like to ask what you think about this, because it's something that never dawned on me before as an eater. So I'll start with the finish and then I'll go to the beginning. So, you know, uh, Several months ago, you know, at our all of our restaurants, we live give give the opportunity for somebody to write um, a comment, 
And now, like when you do open table, you can leave a comment of how your experience was at the restaurant. So we read both. And I always read them both. I like to know the good and the bad. And several months ago, somebody left a comment and they said, the trouble with your food is it's too flavorful. And I thought, well, that is such a weird, well, let me explain. I thought that, and I thought, is that a compliment or is that a criticism, right? And I just sort of, but it was just something that always stayed there. So the other night I went out to dinner and it was a restaurant that was not, uh, say, uh, it was not a uh, focused, it wasn't an, uh, uh, it wasn't like going out for dim sum or it wasn't going out for Thai food. You know, it was going out for food that many different, uh, there were many different influences, okay? And we ordered several dishes. And each dish, in its own way, looked similar because there was so much stuff piled on. And I don't mean in a way where it's a chef that's a chaotic cook. It wasn't chaotic cooking like we've all experienced where it's just way too much. The issue was that each dish did have so much flavor, so much that there wasn't just like a simple green salad with a few fine herbs. You know, there was never that sort of that moment to uh, have something that was a little bit more neutral. And I was thinking, now I understand maybe what that person was saying, that everything maybe did have too much flavor. And, And because every single dish was so flavorful, after the second, I kind of left lost interest in the third and the fourth and the fifth, or the flavors became uh, too interwoven. Does that make sense? Totally. Or no? No, it totally Do you know what I'm saying? It's like I got sick of too much flavor. I mean, because you're, you're just articulating why I hate those walk-around chef events so much. Uh-huh. Because I, d- I don't like to have a million flavors thrown at me in yeah. 45 minutes. You know, I mean, yeah. Um, I and I do think it. Um, it's. One I wanted of, something bland. All of a sudden, you know, I I wanted yeah. an intermezzo or something. Well, I think at some point we should talk about bland foods because I I love yeah. bland foods actually. Yeah. I think I'm liking bland foods. Um, Again, I, mean, I like I like really spicy food, but I also yeah. like really bland nursery food. The contrast. Well, I think we should talk about that one time that everything doesn't have to have chilies and cilantro and Thai fish sauce and on and on, right? Some things are just... But it it also reminds me, Nancy, when you, you used to, both you and Mark used to talk about dishes that need a crunch, you know, the crunch you talked about. Right. So it's not... A texture? Because it's a texture. I mean, well, maybe I think texture is something why. we should talk about at some point too, because I think texture is deeply overlooked, um, especially in this country. Yeah, I mean, you guys I mean, used I, to you know, work on building that into your dishes, right? Trying to definitely. I mean, taking that as one of those building blocks, right? Yeah. So sometimes that would be like, what would you do to? add that crunch that you thought need it was like the finishing thing it needed well you know i mean i because i think that the mistake sometimes people make when they're uh do, do, sort of developing a dish because i see it with our cooks so we make a dish right and then we go to taste it right and some of the cooks will take the most minuscule little bite 
and say, oh, I love it. It's great. And then I'll try to say to them, but you have to imagine yourself or put yourself in the place of a diner where you're eating the entire dish. Could you finish the entire dish? Would it not only hold your interest, which is an important part, on the other hand, would it be so cloying that really all you want is that one minuscule little bit and that's enough because eating the entirety? And I think people forget that, that a dish, no matter what the size, you know, you put the size out, is it a tiny little, um, say, crudo dish, it's very small and you could eat it all, or is it a giant salad? No matter what it is, you have to put it out there with the knowledge that you're giving it to someone because you want them to finish that dish. And you want to create or make it so it's finishable, right? That the person would want to finish it. So before you put something on your menu, do you you know, sit down and eat an entire dish of it? Well, I can't eat an entire dish because I might be trying so much, but I eat enough of it. And I try to use my knowledge to imagine if I could eat it all. But I don't think they're thinking that way. Some of the younger um, cooks will, again, just take that one little bite and then be done with what they need to look at and say, yes, good, or no, not good. Right. And I don't right. think it's enough. I think it needs more scrutiny. Yeah. You know, I mean, when at Gourmet, when we te- tasted dishes, I mean, we we're tasting so many. Yeah. You know. You know, we had, you know, eight people in the kitchen, eight, eight kitchens. And, you know, each of them is making like, what, four or five dishes yeah. a day. Right. So, I mean, you're talking about, you know, even if it's, if you're just taking one spoonful of each of them, it's a huge amount of food. Yeah. And the idea of like eating a lot of it is, um, I'm, I'm sure that that was one of the problems with evaluating those dishes. Is- right. But I think that you have enough history and enough knowledge to be able to, Put yourself in that in that mindset of finishing that whole dish. And that's what I do, but I don't think they're doing it. I think they're just relying on that one bite. Right. You know? Right. Uh, it's, it, it's really interesting. So going back to tripe um, and a dish I ate the whole thing of, um, there was one tripe dish that, Ruth, I wish you could eat. And it's from that <laughs> restaurant, Santo Palato, Nancy, that you sent me to in Rome. Um, and it was sheep tripe. Um, and it was with capers and anchovies and vinegar and rosemary and olives and onion. And it was, you know, you had the Roman style tripe, which is fantastic, but this was like something I had never had the combination of flavors before. I think with the onions and the capers and anchovies kind of made it like a whole different Was it thing. kind of brothy? Was it, I mean, it wasn't menudo, bit. right? And it wasn't tomato-based, right? Or was it? It was not tomato-based, yeah. It, which is usually the case, isn't it? Or yeah, not, it had a little well, bit of broth. Roman tripe is. Yeah. Yeah. It, it had just a little bit of broth, but only in the bottom. And, um, you know, yeah, and it was not tomato-based. It So, you know, if you are shy about tripe, you probably wouldn't, you would look at it and say, hmm, maybe not. But because like Roman tripe, you know, has tomato and parm, you know, the, the cheese, you know, pecorito mm-hmm. and, um, you know, on it. But, um, so it's easier to eat, you know, but this, but this was just like the, 
you know, the chef there, you know, this young woman, Sarah, you know, was so, so good. And you brought her to Los Angeles. Yes. And, you know, by the way, dinner. we just got the okay from American Express. We're going to do a London series. So I'm bringing a handful of really great London chefs to Los Angeles. Oh, exciting. who are you bringing? Rather, so I'm going to bring the woman Knox. I don't know her last name. I apologize. She took over the kitchens at the hotel where uh, I love the pies that they make, the Holborn. It, the restaurant is called the Holborn or it's called the Holborn Hotel. And the book was called the Holborn Pie Shop, Pie Book. I don't know if you remember that book with the beautiful hand pies. She's fantastic. Her name is Knox. And I want to bring over the woman, and I forgive me because I don't remember the names of some of these people, who has a fantastic Spanish, little Spanish restaurant in London called Sabor. And then there's a gentleman that has two fantastic, listen to my <laughs> choice of fantastic, 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 a place called Barbary and Paramount, these tiny little um well, Barbary is the food from the Barbary Coast. Um, again, excellent, excellent, excellent. And then who else are we like? Because we have to look for people that would also kind of translate. Oh, the chef from Lyles, which I love. I mean, we brought over Fergus before. We brought over the chef from Brat, you know. So Lyles is the other restaurant that I think is really great. So those are the five we're working on. And then if we don't get them, I might try to bring in the chef, but I don't know, it would be easy for him to cook the food from um, from Hoppers, who does that great Hoppers the, 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 with that bread and everything. It's really good. But I'm just excited because when you said we brought over um, Sarah Ciccolini from uh, Santa Palata, which is just a gem of a restaurant. I was just there two weeks ago in in Rome, along with the chefs from Roscioli. Um it's so great to be able to bring people over. Never, never is the food as good as the source. Let's put, you know, let's be honest, but it still is a lovely introduction to, uh, to the people that get to eat the food here that don't, haven't had it before from, from the source. Oh, I'm so, looking at, uh, Knox. Uh, so it's Knox Majosi. Yes. Yes. Is that- uh huh. At, at the Holborn, oh, she's from uh-huh. she's from South Africa. And what makes them so fantastic? What what is it about? Well, them I that you I love? just think that it's food that is not available. I mean, I've never had anybody that makes pies of her quality here. Even though we try at Spaka, um, and my inspiration is all from there. So, what what's her food like? What is, what does she serve? Wow, it just uh, there's so many dishes that just are not typical that I haven't eaten here. And she has both things. She has an asador upstairs and a bustling bar downstairs. And um, they are small plates, but it's not any of the same old, same old. And it's someone that I feel is a lot more authentic than some of the other Spanish foods that I've had in some of that, some of the um, younger chefs are kind of doing. They're latching on to things that seem a lot more kind of um, typical. 
and, you know, little baby eels with, you know, with, you know, soft scrambled eggs. And I, I don't know, it's just there, there's something that feels much more authentic and at the same time, much more original. Oh, those baby eels. I'm I just know. remembering there was a period when they were getting them from Maine and nobody wanted them and they were really inexpensive. That lasted about two years. And then suddenly, I mean, they, they are they are horribly expensive, mm-hmm. those little baby eels. I mean, yep. they, they, I mean you can buy them. Um, I, I was tempted to buy them and then it was just like, oh my God, they're so crazy expensive. I just can't do it. They're so delicious, just in a little yep. bit of olive oil with garlic. Yep. And, you know, that main source was, it was amazing. It was about, what, 15 years ago. And then suddenly they were all gone. And this chef from Palomar and the Barbary, which are these two restaurants in London that I had never heard of before, and I'm not sure why I hadn't, because I've been, you know, going there often enough because I have, you know, a restaurant there. Um, and both of them are tiny restaurants with tiny, tiny kitchens in the center of the counter, which is pretty much all you could eat at. There might be one small table adjacent. Um, and so much appreciation for what you can do in such a small space that this fancy, fancy, huge kitchen, you don't necessarily means you make great food. I think we've talked about that before, but it's an example of having super flavorful food. However, I, you don't feel overwhelmed by too much flavor. It's everything is seasoned perfectly but it's not kind of over the top. And it's not a big maybe, combination of crazy ingredients. No, it's not a big combination of crazy ingredients. And when I was referring to that meal that I had recently, it I felt like that that was made was made by a chef that knew what they were doing. So it wasn't like a young chef that just threw in handfuls of everything, but it was still too much, too much of everything on, you know, after a while, this is very flavorful food with very flavorful spices, but they all worked. I don't feel like I'm being bombarded or being hit over the head with them. Production services for three ingredients are provided by Voltage. It is produced by J.E. Peterson and edited and mixed by Ness smith Savadoff. The music for this show was provided by Alex Mastronardi and Richard Farrell. Before you go, don't forget to join us at threeingredients.substack.com if you haven't already. It's a great place to ask your burning culinary questions, share your own food stories, and meet other people obsessed with food. We love hearing from you. Thanks again, and keep cooking. Keep cooking.